the word of God from Acts. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes, Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, and belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judah, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I, might, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath that he would set his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, 
that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and if and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Remain standing with me for just one more moment so we can pray together before we begin. Our Father in heaven, thank you for speaking to us through the scriptures. Week after week, we need to hear your voice. We need to be summoned out of our work and out of our labor to rest in and commune with you, to find our true selves and long for home together to be sent back out into the world so our work would become worship before you. So we invite you to meet with us now. Make our hearts soft and sensitive. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. That our lives would be changed and transformed by the story you are telling about the world. Encounter us through your spirit and lift us up to the risen Jesus who is our hope and peace and guarantee of everlasting life. We pray and ask for all these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Please take your seats. Well, good morning, everyone, and happy Sunday, and welcome to our new uh, church home for the summer. If we haven't met yet, hi, my name is Ty. I'm a pastoral resident here at Denver Press. So we'll be interrupting our study of Samuel today 
because today on the church calendar is Pentecost, which is just a fancy Greek word that means the 50th day. So I know it's, it's sort of hard to believe, but it's been 50 days since the victory and the celebration and the feasting of Resurrection Sunday. So Pentecost goes by another name in the Old Testament. Maybe you've read in Exodus 23 or Numbers 29 about the Feast of Weeks uh, or the Feast of Harvest. And that's when every Israelite would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at the beginning of spring, and they would present the first of their harvest to God um, to rejoice in God's faithfulness in providing their daily bread, but also to celebrate God's abundance, knowing the rest of the harvest will come and it will be enough through spring and through summer. So some scholars think the pilgrims would recite parts of Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11 at the harvest feast. And Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11 says this. A wandering Aramean was my father, referring to Abraham. And he went down to Egypt, and the Egyptians dealt ill with us and afflicted us. And we cried out to God, the God of our ancestors, and God heard our voices. And God brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and the signs and wonders. And God has brought us into this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And you shall rejoice in all the good that God has given you and to your house and the Levite and the stranger that is in the midst of you. So the children of Israel would have this two-day party in Jerusalem to express their dependence on and gratitude for God, retelling the story of their enslavement, liberation, and then entrance into the promised land. So they would remember that God wants them to flourish under his rule. So when this predominantly Jewish crowd uh, gathers for Pentecost in Acts 2, they were expecting a harvest feast of some kind. And that's exactly what they get, just not exactly in the way that they were expecting. Because the resurrection of Jesus and outpouring of the Holy Spirit shifted the meaning of the original harvest feast. So today we'll explore the true uh, spiritual harvest that happens at Pentecost, and then we'll discuss the resurrection reversals that empowered the Jesus movement. So that's our outline today for the three note takers, um, true spiritual harvest and resurrection reversals. So let's start with a true spiritual harvest. And let me say at the beginning that Acts 2 is notoriously difficult to understand, and a hotly contested chapter in Scripture. Um, not only because there are dicey theological debates about the gifts of the Spirit and tongues that arrive from this scene, uh, but also because the apostles are awkwardly accused of starting the Pentecost party early and muttering drunken nonsense. Um, Peter quotes a scary apocalyptic scene in Joel about darkness, smoke, blood, and the apparent end of the world. And there doesn't seem to be any hints here about any kind of harvest feast. Right? So, so what's going on in this strange uh, Pentecost celebration? So the key, I think, is in verses 2 through 3. So let me read it again to you. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound 
like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. So if you're a careful and avid reader of the Old Testament, you know that the combination of, of these two images, wind or cloud, and fire, uh, is used to depict God's glory when it fills some sacred space, right? The first time the wind and fire appear together is when the tabernacle, you know, God's uh, mobile tent that leads the Israelites through the wilderness and into the promised land is set up. So listen carefully to the the very end of Exodus 40. It says this, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day that it lifted. It's so repetitive, just in case you missed it. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during all of their travels. So here, the cloud and the fire are representations of God's glory and presence, right? They were Israel's literal, literal guiding light away from the land of slavery, and through the wilderness. So without God's glory and presence, they would have never made it into the promised land. So those same set of images are used when Solomon builds the temple. So after he finishes praying for God's new home to be a more permanent sign of God's favor over Israel, 2 Chronicles 7, which I know you read for a devotion this morning, says this, Fire came down from heaven, And consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priests could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. When all the Israelites saw the fire coming down and the glory of the Lord above the temple, they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground and they worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, He is good, His steadfast love endures forever. So these two symbols, right, the the cloud and the fire, when they descend and when they they settle somewhere, they represent represent God filling that space and making it sacred. So Acts 2 is depicting the construction of a new sacred space, right, a new tabernacle and a new temple where God's glory and presence fill not buildings, right, but people. So this time... God's glory and presence is empowering the Jesus movement, right, to go out from Jerusalem into the outer regions of Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth by actually living within the new covenant family of Jesus. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells within you, right? That's the true spiritual harvest uh, at Pentecost. It's us, right? His, God's new temple creation. So you could summarize it this way. The resurrection of Jesus is the first fruit offering, right? The first and the best of the new spring harvest that guarantees that the rest of the crop is coming. And then 50 days later, you and I 
are the fruit of God's labor. So I think this is so uh, practically relevant for us because life is discouraging, right? We get apathetic, disappointed, even angry by what we don't see God doing in our lives. We think God has forgotten about us or just doesn't care about us anymore because if he did, clearly, like, we would be different. Our lives would be more changed. And we feel that way, and it's real, You know, the demands and the disappointments of life can make God's transformative presence taste unsatisfying at times. But this story reminds us that God is so committed to your fruitfulness, right? He's the one tilling the soil of your heart and tending the garden of your life. He's the one who most desires, is most invested in, and most enjoys the fruit of his labor, which is your transformation, right? Because he's the gardener who makes space for sacred growth to happen in our lives. The thing is, God is just so much more patient about that sacred growth than we are. And he gets that all fruitfulness goes through four cycles, You know, there's fall cultivation, winter hibernation, spring harvest, and summer feasting. So I don't know, and by the way, I'm not a farmer. I'm like so talking outside of my area of expertise. This is just what I've read about, okay? So I don't know anything experientially about this. But the metaphor works, right? So like, look, I don't know what season of life you're in. You know, you might be in a long fall of eager expectation right, when there's new colors and and you can feel the wind of change, Uh, maybe some leaves are starting to drop because of the spiritual cold you're experiencing, and there's no fruit yet. But I I just want you to hear that God is active during the fall, right? He's digging deep roots in you that will one day bear lots of fruit for himself and others to enjoy. Or maybe you're in a harsh, cold winter, And it feels like spring will just never arrive. But you have to remember that winter is a time of intentional dormancy, right? Because the harvest always arises out of the decay and ashes that come with the severity of the season, right? It's it's the fury and the silence of winter's night that makes spring's sudden arrival so much more satisfying. And God wants that spring harvest for you and summer feasting for for you, right? You are the fruit of God's labor, and your fruitfulness is his reward. So this is what separates the way of Jesus from every other religion, right? Every other religion has a self-cultivation, you know, self-growth strategy for divine acceptance, right? I do this or sacrifice that, or offer up my most prized possession to God or the gods, then they know I'm pious enough and worthy enough to deserve a reward for my devotion. Right? It's a quid, it's a quid pro quo. My public piety, my livestock, my crops, my prayers for your divine favor. But following Jesus isn't like that at all. Like listen to John 15, 1 through 4. This is Jesus talking to the uh, apostles. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, 
he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. So what makes you worthy isn't your fruit, right? It's not your job title. It's not your status. It's not your paycheck. It's not your giving. It's not your moral political positions. Jesus says you are already clean or acceptable because of the word that he speaks, right? So Jesus' word of rescue and communion cleans you. It renews you. It makes you a hospitable place for God to make into his new home. So look, you are God's spiritual harvest. He wants you to bear fruit. And that fruitfulness is created simply by remaining in him, you know, listening to his voice. So his word word would prune you into a blossoming, life-giving tree. This isn't self-cultivation or self-growth at all. This is continually planting and replanting yourself in God, resting in the waters of the word so your growth comes from him because he delights in and shares your spiritual harvest with others. That's the true spiritual harvest of Pentecost, being rooted in God's glory so our lives would be filled with his fruitful presence. But what about these resurrection reversals and, and how do they empower the Jesus movement? So Peter explicitly quotes Joel 2, Psalm 16, and Psalm 110 in his sermon before the Pentecost crowd. So Joel 2 is about the decreation that happens when God pours out his spirit on all people. Psalm 16 is about God lifting up his chosen Messiah out of death's grip. And Psalm 110 is about God setting a divine king on his own throne. So in this Peter says, has all been fulfilled through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. He says in verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, by the way, whom you crucified, both Lord, that's a reference to Psalm 110, and Messiah, that's a reference to Psalm 16. So Peter's standing up trying to convince everyone that Israel's story reaches its climax in Jesus. Even though death would normally end every other story, it's not the end of Jesus' story, right? In fact, it's just the beginning, right? And not just for him, but for the story God has been telling about the world since he created it. So the resurrection life of Jesus marks the beginning of God's recreation of the world, right? To restore it to its original beauty and purpose and fruitfulness. So there's this theme Peter is playing on, right? It's this theme of resurrection reversals. At least that's what I'm calling it. And you see it explicitly in verse 23 and 24 when Peter says, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but God raised him from the dead, which means God is undoing the very source of human evil and suffering by raising Jesus from the dead. And then you see it again in the contrast between David and Jesus in verses 29 through 32. So look there, and I'll I'll summarize it for us. So on the one hand, King David's prosperous reign came to an end when he died, right? And his tomb is evidence of that. 
That's verses 29 through 30. And then on the other hand, Jesus was enthroned to an everlasting kingdom at his death. And his empty tomb proves he is the divine king God puts on his own throne. So the resurrection undoes the natural rhythms of ancient dynasties, right, where one king dies, another takes his place, and there's no guarantee of stability or security in between. Right? This is often the most volatile and violent transition of power. But not so with Jesus. Right? Yahweh, the God of Israel, pledges to make Israel's true king enemyless. Or in the poet's words, I will make your enemies a footstool underneath your feet. Which means there's actually peace in this kingdom. And I think it's important to pause here and reflect on the resurrection reversals that happen in your own life. Because your story reaches its climax in the Jesus story too. And the purpose of those reversals is also peace. So the highest fulfillment of this is our future resurrection from the dead and everlasting life with God in his kingdom of peace. All right, so all of those precious lives that were taken by disease or disaster or natural death, right, he will lift up on that last day and will be reunited with them and will finally be at home with Jesus. And that's what we want. Right? That's what we want. And he'll wipe away every tear with the leaves of the tree of life. But God also gives us a taste of that future resurrection, hope, and peace by infusing his own divine life into our death-dealing ways now. So I want you to think about the death-dealing ways of relating to others that you experience, right? Both the unfair ways you treat others and the wounds that you carry from them. So, so all of that, right? All of the hurt and the pain, all of the anger and the regret and shame, all of it bears the mark of death, right? And God takes the ashes from our hearts, those near-death experiences of our lives, the bitter and cruel and unjust suffering we've inflicted on others and have been inflicted on us. And he takes the trauma and the ache of death into his hands, and from those ashes brings life and goodness and beauty once again, right? That's a resurrection reversal, because God's instinct is to take things that are death-dealing and make them life-giving. So in the quietness of this space that we're in together, as we sit together in the presence of the living God, like, ask him, like, what actions should you turn from because it deals death to others, right? Ask him to search you, you know, to know you, to test you, and to expose the darker sides of you so you can move away from the darkness and into the light of his beloved son. Ask him for a resurrection reversal in your ugliest and longest standing moral failures, like whatever it might be, just get honest with God about them so he can repair the ruins of your heart and make peace from your worst choices. Like ask him to do that for you. And I also want you to consider someone who's hurt you, right, who needs a resurrection reversal of their own and like sincerely pray for them, you know, not in a judgy way, you know, not as an enemy, but as a companion, you know, a, a wounded companion 
as someone who equally needs the love of God in Christ Jesus to undo the hurt and pain of their own life. Like, ask God for a name, for a love for that person that exceeds your own natural ability, you know, for compassion to humanize them once again, for a deep and genuine care for them so you can forgive them from your heart. Because true forgiveness and peacemaking brings us closer to home than almost anything else in the world, right? At least that's the invitation of Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just like God in Christ forgave you. So ask God to make you into the kind of forgiving person that mirrors God's gracious and abundant forgiveness towards you. I mean, after all, that's what Peter thinks is the right response to his sermon. When someone asks, what should we do? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So repentance, faith, forgiveness, union with Jesus through baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, like those are the things that empower the Jesus movement. Right? That's how we make peace in our world. And that's how we experience resurrection reversals of our own. God did it for those gathered at the first Pentecost, and he'll do it for us again gathered at this Pentecost. So I want to I close here with a pastoral reflection on good and bad fruits in our lives. Because we've talked a lot about God's commitment to our fruitfulness. And I'm sure, like me, you have good and bad fruit, right? Don't be ashamed of the rotten fruit, and don't boast in your best fruit. What I want us to do is to trace those fruits back to the soil that gave rise to it. So ask yourself this question. Like, what am I planted in? You know, what roots me? What fertile ground am I already in that results in my thoughts and actions and will and behavior? All right, so let's start by reflecting on where your good fruit comes from. I think we should start here because for a lot of us Denverites, we enjoy the fruit of success, right? Wealth, titles, degrees, homeownership, networks, partnerships, beautiful spouses, privileged kids. Like, don't get me wrong. Like, none of those things are inherently bad. None of them, right? I have a lovely family and letters behind my name. Yes, it happens to be letters nobody else in the modern world actually cares about, but it's still letters, right? MDiv can be mistaken for MD if you have really poor vision, right? But, like, the question is, like, where does your good fruit come from? You know, did it come from a place of trust? and faithfully pursuing your calling and carrying your own cross like Jesus invites us to? Or did it come from blind ambition, you know, envy, greed, uh, status-seeking or power-hungry craving? So if, if your life is successful, do you assume it's a sign of God's blessing? Or even worse, that people who don't have what you do aren't as favored as God by you are. So you see, what I'm trying to point out is 
good fruit with bad soil can be a dangerous thing, right? Can, because you can see it as your right and your reward for your performance rather than the gift that it is from your Heavenly Father. So if you see the fruit of success in your life, I think you should contemplatively pray through Galatians 5, through 23 again and ask that God would give you the fruit of the Spirit instead. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You know, in an affluent and materialistic culture, we need to constantly humble ourselves before God for the good fruit he is creating in our lives. So we don't arrogantly dismiss God's generosity to us, right? Or assume God especially favors wealthy high achievers, you know? But we also need to consider whether or not we're misidentifying the fruit of capitalistic success with the fruit of virtue formation that comes from the Spirit, and pray more urgently for the character-forming fruit of the Spirit, right? Because that's the fruit God desires us to have. Not things, but integrity, right? Because we're not primarily human doings, right? We're human beings, and God wants to transform us into the kind of beings who reflect his character in the world. So I have another, maybe even harder, diagnostic question for you. You know, what about the bad fruit? Where, where does that come from? You know, the harsh words you have with your spouse or your kids, the slander saved especially for that one coworker at work, the devotion to sports or recreation or entertainment at the expense of your spiritual health, the unending desire to consume and one-click purchase one more Amazon item, right? The endless doom scrolling through pictures or videos on social media or the news, the apathy towards God because you're just too busy, right? Or the fear that paralyzes faith. And look, hear me when I'm saying that. When I'm, well, hear, hear, what I'm, hear what I'm saying here. I ain't judging you. I am not judging you. Those descriptions are about my own life. Okay? When I'm really looking at the man in the mirror, I am guilty of all of those things. All of them. Especially spiritual apathy during the NBA playoffs. Okay? Like, pray for me. But we just, we just don't need to trace every good and perfect gift back to God. But we also need to uproot, you know, rotten soil. You know, believe it or not, there are things you should say no to in life. Right? So you can say yes to a more rich and satisfying life in God. And the more you crowd out those lower, disordered loves with higher, rightly ordered loves, your fruitfulness will only multiply because you're deeply rooted in the soil that matters the most. So whatever fruit you have, like spoiled or delicious, I'm sure it's mixed, you know, just like mine. Like hear the words of Jesus. I am the vine, you are the branches, and my Father is the gardener. He will prune you so that you can become even more fruitful. 
So let him till the soil of your heart. Right? Let him tend the garden of your life. He's skilled and gentle at trimming. He knows where to cut and when. And your fruitfulness is his reward. Amen? Amen. May God gather an abundant harvest from us at Denver Press. Would you pray with me as we close? Father, you are a skilled gardener who not only cultivates and harvests fruitfulness in our lives, but delights in and shares the feast of that harvest with others. You're a God of labor and abundance. Help our hearts to find their rest in you so you could do more in our lives than we would ever dare to imagine. Thank you for this Pentecost feast, this 50th day after Resurrection Sunday, where our lives get caught up in the resurrection life of Jesus. Would you take all of our fruit, prune the bad, and blossom the good so our lives would reflect your goodness and peace and life-giving love in the world, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.